Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective After Dusk. We are in beautiful New London, Connecticut. Uh, as you can hear in the background, people are celebrating something. And we are here later than usual in the day uh, because, I don't know, Brandon just told us to and we just do what he says because he is the best producer in niche outdoor podcasts in America. <laughs> We will be talking today in honor of our friend and colleague, Andrew Heron, the Ryder Cup. After telling him, no, we're not going to do the Ryder Cup for 59 consecutive weeks, <laughs> we finally relented and did the Ryder Cup, and we're very excited about it. Zach and I did a lot of research so we could ask him questions, but how you doing, Andrew? I'm doing well. This was definitely one for me. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate it. Also, yes, there are no halvings of the whole here. And, this uh, is one for me. Right. <laughs> so I have a question for you, Andrew. Yes, sir. Which American and which European have scored the most Ryder Cup points for their home countries, and are they dead or alive? The most points on the European side is Sergio Garcia. Yeah, who's obviously. Who has scored, actually, this fun fact here. Yeah, I believe he has scored more points in his career than this this American team going into this event. Those players have combined in their career. He scored twenty five and a half, I think, and the combined twelve it is Americans 25 and a half. have scored less than that, which is just and, crazy to me. Right, European side is. Uh, I'm sorry, your American side would be. This was a hard one. I'm gonna get this wrong. I think. Um, points by an American, Lenny Watkins. Wrong. Oh, yeah, wrong. So sorry. Yeah. Shit. Um, he's alive. Uh, yeah, but he, he doesn't count. I know. Congratulations, Lady Watkins, for being alive. I know. But nobody cares. You didn't um, get those points, so we don't care. care. Uh, he, he, he's a. He was somewhere between the fifth and tenth best golfers of the sixties. Billy Casper. That is God correct. Damn it. That's correct. Unfortunately, ah. unfortunately, <laughs> you got it wrong at first. Is Billy Casper alive or dead? Uh, he's dead. Right, but yeah. fortunately, because you screwed it up early, we don't have to send, send his widow a lovely edible arrangement. So it saved you a little bit of money. You might have thrown that one just in case. I did not throw that. <laughs> I, I oh, To me, Watkins is the best Ryder Cup. I, I, declare right. I declared a shenanigans <laughs> on that answer. No, and, um, getting out of uh, and what, tax write-off. And what will be your rent? I'm going to talk about a video that I was three years late to a Brian Kemp campaign video that I think is a just a microcosm of the ills of the GOP and just our sort of general political ecosystem in 2021. That is a, a very timely way to put that because one of the reasons we're running late is, of course, all of us went down to D.C. to protest the jailing of the, <laughs> yes, of the, the ju Justice for J6 rally. The Justice for J6 rally. Where there's, uh, more, there's more media there than there are right, people. Right, yes, and, and we all bought raccoon hats and, and wrote our own songs for it. Uh, it's very exciting. Brandon's been after me to write more songs, and uh, he'll have one next week probably, but we have to get the raccoon hats made. How you doing, Zach? Doing well. I'm enjoying this uh, pre-dusk, post-dusk episode. Right. It's very nice outside. Right, we did get to see the early college games, and Andrew, I did not congratulate you, dude. UConn covered. <laughs> did they really? With one minute and four seconds to go in the game, they scored a touchdown against a very bad Army team to cover 
the 34 and a half points, they lost 52 21. Right. The week I don't bet them. They yeah. Clap it out for you. Clap it out for you. Clap it out for you. Right. The, Cheers, Lou Spano. Uh, uh, the quarterback. He scored two touchdowns on the ground, but he averaged 4.4 yards per attempt and threw an interception with no touchdowns. So things are good in stores. Yeah, yeah things, things are good are in stores. We're looking up in the loose Spano era. So, Zach, what will you be ranting about? Uh, I'll be ranting about something that has split the left this week, which is the uh, and the family and the family <laughs> and the podcast. I may say, uh, the AOC uh, tax the rich dress, which when we say split, we have a I don't know two percent disagreement. But for the podcast, that's that's pretty drastic. There's a schism. It's a schism. Yeah, it's a schism. It's a, schism. it's a cavern. Can I just say, she looked amazing in oh that dress. Well, she always <laughs> looks amazing. Like, like, because Alicia said to my my lovely girlfriend Alicia, who I'm hoping to bring on next week, asked me what I thought of it, and my answer probably inappropriate. <laughs> I thought the rich part looked great yes. on the dress. So, yeah, so that's what you'll be ready about. I have a question for you, Zach. Where did Dr. Nick Riviera go to medical school? Hollywood Upstairs Medical College. <laughs> that oh, is correct. Smashed. <laughs> do you know who he was named after? I do not. Dr. Nicopopoulos was Elvis Presley's doctor who got, who, who got whatever the medical version of disbarred is for handing out horse tranquilizers like they were Pez. Uh, but yeah, Dr. Nick was what Presley called his doctor. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Well, a great character. Yeah. What will you be ranting about today? How are you? Well, more importantly, how are you doing? What's the haps? I am doing tremendous. I got to do what you got to do just a couple of years ago and see David Burns' American Utopia, which is the most amazing music visual event I can imagine. It is. Uh, and, I, and you follow that up by dressing up like an old Grimace. The uh, old, the, the old so, character. So, so here's the thing. <laughs> Brandon said, dress like you want to be photographed. So I thought like, all right, I won't just wear my thong. But but no, no. Like I never wear shorts. I only wear long pants because I'm an old guy, an old Irish guy. Nobody wants to see that. And I wore a button-up shirt, which neither of the two of you did. And so I was just listening to our producer. This is how I want to be filmed. Likewise. And I got a, hey, I got a golf club here, so there you go. And, yeah, uh, you remember, you, you actually I, read the memo, because I brought beer, and beer is well, my prop, but I've brought beer every podcast we've ever done. And what will, you be, what will you be ranting about today? I will be ranting about a middle Pennsylvania school board decision which gives me no hope that America will will avoid being basically feudalism if there's still a planet in 2060. Some say Central Pennsylvania is the Kentucky of the North. That's and, right. Uh, with that, we'll be back after this short break with our rants this week on the Bill Bradley Collective. Passing through the intersection of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Andrew, Ed, and Zach. So we're going to start our rants where we often start them, with the Central York School Board in Pennsylvania. They recently banned 100... Uh, 
over 100 books from their libraries, books, videos, etc. From the school libraries, the board is, and this is a parlay you almost never see, all Republican, all white. Unheard of. Unheard of. School boards being all Republican and all white because, because they get national funding for school board races. And here's why. 100% of the over 100 books that were banned were written by people of color. The head of the Board of Ed, the chairman of the Board of Ed, called that a coincidence. That was his exact word. Oh, that's a coincidence. Now, 18% of the students are minorities. It's not an all-white area. Among the books banned is a children's book, a Caldecott winner called I Am Rosa Parks. There is the Nobel Prize winning uh, book, I Am Mahala, which is about a girl demanding an education against the Taliban. The video, I Am Not Your Negro, the interview with James Baldwin, the Academy Award winning video, banned. The Sesame Street Town Hall on race and racism, banned. They had a video conference on this. The teachers were aghast because they said, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to have somebody at my door telling me, wait a second, you started your lesson with a quote on Frederick Douglass, you're gone. The students were aghast. One senior said, I want to know all of history, not just the parts that are deemed good for me. But the parents were not were more split. There were some parents that were against it uh, and probably deeply regretted moving to central Pennsylvania. But one parent said, I don't want my daughter to feel guilty about being white. (laughs) Now, my dear departed mother was able to use guilt the way Bruce Lee used nunchucks. (laughs) And anyone who knows me knows I, I begin the day feeling guilty I end the day feeling guilty and feel guilty the entire time in between. I have never once felt guilty about being white. I don't think, Zach, you were raised to feel guilty about being white. You were raised, because I believe it, that we were born with incredible privilege just because we were white. And that that gives you a privilege that people of color don't have, especially white males. And that we need to take down that privilege moving forward. And we need to recognize that privilege in helping others. That's not the same thing as feeling guilty. But to prevent even those thoughts, the school board has said, no, we'll just not talk about it. And if you wonder about the implications of this, the first black principal in a Texas, this rural Texas town in its history was removed yesterday for promoting critical race theory And he said he had no idea what the hell they were talking about. Really, on day 13, they fired him for being black. That's where we are. And I think that this, I mean, this is one of, this is an underreported story. One of the underreported stories is the takeover of school boards by well-funded extreme right wings, white Republicans. And not only does that show how deeply fucked up this country is, but how fucked we are moving forward because we are going to deny future generations the information they need to make us a better place.
Yeah, it's it, and it's one of those issues where it's easy to look at the South and like for us in the Northeast, go like, oh, look at them down there being hicks. But in Guilford, Connecticut, which is a white, wealthy suburb, they just had a Republican slate that ran particularly against teaching CRT, critical race theory, in the classrooms. And there was highest Republican turnout they've ever seen, highest Republican switch to affiliation to be Republican they've ever seen. And they swept the slate and they're going to beat the Democrats. This is, and this is something that is happening across the country. This is happening in every community. And, you know, these are the same parents that are saying, you know, wearing masks are hurting children's education. You know, this hybrid learning is hurting teacher children's education. No, the thing's hurting children's education is them not getting an education. Them not learning the world. And the problem with the Demo- the Democrats is because Pennsylvania went for Biden in 20, we said, oh, that's great. Pennsylvania's a Democratic state. No, it's not. It's a presidential, it's, it's a Democratic state during presidential elections. That's what it is sometimes. And that doesn't matter. Like, this is far more important to the people of Pennsylvania than anything Biden will do unless he declares war on Europe or something, because it's just going to, this issue will affect everything for them. I, there's so much to unpack there, um, but briefly, two things. Uh, one, if we're to, to the point where we're going to ban the likes of James Baldwin from curriculum, then that's end of days sort of territory. Two, and I think Zach, you know, Zach and I both, you both, the importance of municipal elections and being being active in local you see like these these meetings these uh whether it's whether it's about critical race theory whether it's about masks in schools and it seems like the loudest voices at these meetings are those that are anti-mask that are anti uh crt you know show up let's you know the other side the the side of what i think is reason needs to kind of like step up and be heard and, and participate in this process and really you know, not that they aren't, but it seems like they've been kind of... No, no they, they aren't. And, and, That's the problem. They aren't. Well, the, the two things is like, one, it's also, you know, it's all it, it's almost hard to even justify them, their, their terminology of critical race theory, because critical race theory is like a collegiate level curricula. Like, it is not something that is being taught in schools. It, it's meaningless. It is just history. And the other thing is, Andrew, you're exactly right. Like, local elections impact people's lives day in and day out, and they're the least voted in elections. And presidential elections, which by and large do not impact people's lives very much day in, day out, are the most voted in. And it's just one of those things where it's very frustrating, just like the people who teach your kids, the people who pick up your trash, you should probably be interested in who is holding those offices. And as the great David Byrne said on concert yesterday where I was 21% of the people in New York voted in the election that elected Bill de Blasio, which means only about 16% of the people in New York picked Bill de Blasio, and that turned out to not be perfect. That wasn't great. (laughs) That wasn't wasn't great. So I guess another uh, chapter in our ongoing sort of social Armageddon here. Um, While perusing social media this week, I came upon a video that I was led to believe was like current but it wasn't. It was from. It was in the lead up to the 2018 Georgia uh, gubernatorial election, and the one one Brian Kemp, a frequent target, tar- friend of the pod, friend of the pod. You know, uh, friend slash target slash you know punching bag, what have you. Um, it was a video in his campaign that aired 
across the state of Georgia. And of course, Kemp won. He is the incoming governor. I want to kind of just provide here without without comment the transcript and the kind of a blow by blow of this of this ad, which I had never which I'm surprised that I had never seen then because it looks it it literally looks straight out of like Saturday Night Live or The Onion or or something uh, like that. So, you know, here's Kemp and it's in what you're led to believe is like his yard, his ranch. Here's the transcript. Let's go. I'm Brian Kemp. I'm so conservative. I blow up government spending. And behind him, there's like this small, really cheap explosion. Um, yeah. I own guns that no one's taking away. And he's like kind of surrounded by this like militia, all these, all these rifles and like shotguns and shit behind him. My chainsaw is ready to rip up some regulations. <laughs> and he's like wielding a chainsaw. I've seen this commercial. Oh, you have seen this commercial? Yeah. It's bad. This, this, is, this is the line. This is the kicker here. This is like the shot and chaser. I got a big truck just in case I need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. And he gets into his what truck. What is with that? What is with these guys and their whole belief he, that they're he, just going to be like sheriffs? He <laughs> follows that up with knowing that he just said something so fucking toxic. He says, yep, I just said that. Doubles down. He's proud of his fucking toxicity. Uh, he rounds it out. I'm Brian Kemp. And if you want a politically incorrect conservative, that's me. I'm almost more troubled by the fact that it was from 2018 than it was from now because people saw this, this ad, and this guy fucking won. He won that election with on, on, on the back of an advertisement like that. What the fuck? <laughs> Well, I, I just I was aghast but the, at this. But this gets to we just I, this gets to what we just talked awesome. about. That was and, and that Holy was shit. pop baby. And, and that was Brandon popping champagne in honor of Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp. <laughs> We're gonna dump that motherfucker out too. But this is a state that in a presidential election voted for two Democrats, including one of the what five six most uh, liberal. Senators in Warnock in Warnock, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, an incredibly liberal senator, and then for three years, it's a completely different voting district, uh, a voting block, and you get this asshole who is almost afraid you don't know how dumb he is, and by the way, he may get primaried for not being quite dumb enough because he wouldn't he wouldn't pretend. That the election was stolen when it clearly wasn't. Like, I mean, as bad as Brian Kemp is, and he's so god awful, he somehow manages to slip beneath DeSantis as the worst governor you can imagine. It, it's just, but but you're right. And and by the way, and I hope, I'm sure all of our listeners who own pickup trucks, because I almost bought a pickup truck once, are fine people. The chance of Brian Kemp owning a pickup truck was somewhere around 100%. It's another one of those long lines of Republican ads that are kind of deranged. Do you remember during Obamacare, the debate, the first election after Obamacare passed, when all the Republicans had ads where they were just shooting the bill? Yeah. The Tea Party <laughs> shit, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they were just taking these high-powered rifles and shooting holes in it, and it was just like, like this is deranged. It's pretty terroristic, too, <laughs> this is, honestly. This is unhinged this is not how normal people feel about the world who looks at something and goes i'm gonna blow it up like, 
and it's this belief like Ted Cruz has it. You know, we've we've joked about Ted Cruz going down to the border and being like, I'm on the border, look at me. <laughs> like right. is these guys have this fantasy of being like these cowboys, like John Wayne, where they're just gonna go around and like commit kidnappings of like other people and say, Well, they're illegal immigrants. It's okay that I kidnap them. It's like that was the plot to Black Snake Moan. <laughs> like, Good like, call. Like, it's ridiculous. Except without Susan Ricci. Yeah. Uh, um, Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci, yeah. Susan Ricci's her older sister. That's the one I liked. But, um, no, it, it is, it, it's just, uh, I, 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 I don't know. Thank, thank you for bringing up that memory. I mean, sp- <laughs> spring of 2019, I spent the better part of a week in Georgia between Athens, the college town where UGA is, and various parts of Atlanta. I and, and like being in those two, I was like, I could live here. I I dig this place. You could be around. I spent but, 2016. I spent two weeks around in, in DeKalb County, which surrounds Atlanta, right. and it was fine. Like there were rednecks around, but it was kind of like Eastern Connecticut. Like okay, yeah. or or South Northwest yeah, Connecticut. Like all right, I could take a ten minute ride and get back to civilization. <laughs> But the problem is when you get into rural Georgia, civilization the next stop for civilization, Chicago. <laughs> uh to wrap up us uh, to wrap us up this week, uh I'm gonna be talking about kind of this week in performative politics. And I'm gonna start it off by saying, one, I, I love AOC. I think she's one of the best Democrats we have. I think she continually does a great job and she's inspired like millions of young women to run for office and millions of young progressives to like become politically active, which I think is why I was so irritated by the quote unquote, the dress, you know, she wears this, she, it was, it was a black woman owned business. She wears this $36,000 dress to the Met Gala where, you know, went in hobnobs with millionaires, billionaires, the elites of our country, the people who really run the finance sector. And on the dress, it said, tax the rich. And one of the reasons why this irritated me so much is that when I was younger, I used to like find performative politics as like the end-all be-all, where I would be very excited about what people did and how they did it and the messages they were sending. And, you know, I liked, you know, taking the fight and punching the guy in the nose kind of thing, you know, speaking truth to power. But then I would look at like their actual voting records and what they're actually doing. And over time, it just made me cynical and cold about politics. And people today deserve better than to be cynical and cold about politics. It's just too important. And for her to do this and wear this dress to to, to go to this elite event, it's an event for elites. Like you, we're not going to this event. We're, we can't, you know, the, the event charges more than we all make in our yearly salary to get into the event. Kim Kardashian was there. Yeah, Kim Kardashian is there. Billionaires and billionaires oh, oh are there. And it was one of those things where I just looked at and went, all you're doing is just putting on a show. Like, she was pictured leaving with this billionaire heiress who helped cover up the Nexium sex cult scandal. And it's like, oh, did that woman, when you were walking away, were you having big tax policy debates? Were you really exploring the capital gains tax with her? When you were in there, what... When people said, hey, nice dress, we saying, yes, we need to pay more in taxes. Here's why in giving, you know, actual fighting and speaking truth to power. Or were you just simply enjoying the event and being around all these powerful people? And it strikes me as like, you know, the, the, the godfather of the progressive movement right now is Bernie Sanders. And it strikes me as something he would never, ever do. So 
you and I had a Facebook exchange on that, which I then called yeah. off because it was at a point where the chances that both of us had been drinking were about the same as the fact that a pickup truck owner would vote for Brian Kemp. So the next day, and and I will I will acknowledge, this is, I think, near the bottom of the thing she's done. But I think, first of all, politics is performative. And I understand that Bernie would never be performative in that way, but Bernie is performative. 8,000 pictures of Bernie flying coach from event to event. Bernie flew coach in about 30% of the events. Because yeah. once he was raising more money than God, he stopped flying coach. Because who the fuck wants to fly coach? And nobody took any pictures of that because politics is inherently performative. And that's not new. Abraham Lincoln was six foot four and wore a top hat that nobody wore back. You've never seen another person from 1860 wearing that top hat. But he wanted to come across like a giant because it helped him. Politics is inherently performative because you have to get votes. Um. I don't think it was her best moment. It was probably the best moment in that young black woman's life whose dress she wore because Absolutely. she, you know, and, and there's that. Um, which I which I gave credo right. to. Yeah, beginning. you just did. You, you, this is a more nuanced comment than you made on Facebook. And because <laughs> <laughs> you had a couple days. Um, I've stewed and, on it. And then the <laughs> next day, she put in a proposal that the Department of Defense cannot provide weapons to Saudi Arabia because of Khashoggi and Colombia for somebody. Like, there's a whole bunch of people, states that she is demanding a vote on for, for the Congress to give them to vote for, for allowing them to buy weapons from us. That is good, solid policy. It is effective policymaking. In its own way, it's performative because it'll carry. But it, it, I mean, yeah, it's not going anywhere. But and it also demonstrates, and I, I am the last person to criticize Bernie Sanders. But there, there is a way in which her mastery of modern media makes her gives her a wider audience than any progressive other than Bernie could have, because Bernie's a one, in, Bernie's a unicorn. There's no one else like Bernie. But as much as I love him. The fact that he's talking about the same things in 2021 that he was talking about as a mayor of ni- in 1988 indicates he hasn't been that successful because it's the same fucking problem. I mean, when I get on people who upset me in Congress, I'm going a long way before I get to AOC. Zach and I were kind of talking this out as it was happening Monday night. We were actually here on the veranda um, and we were looking at social media and seeing these pictures of all the celebs and whatnot. And we saw picture of AOC in that dress my issue is with the Met the Met Ball the Met Gala whatever the fuck it's called which to me is just this circle jerk to the cult of celebrity the cult of wealth in this country I don't I don't know what it is what it does what it's just it's a bunch of listen it was not you know Simone Biles was there she looked Beautiful, had this this great, beautiful dress. And, I mean, Steph, Almost Steph Curry and his wife, that was yeah, nice. Celebrities don't buy their own tickets. They, they're, they're sent there by the designers. I say, what the fuck is it? And, and also, I don't think this is the place for any 
elected official public servant to kind of be like in the first place. I I, I don't understand. But she wasn't the only one there. I, I, I'm and aware. It's common that there are other people. Yeah, there. somebody mentioned there was a and New I, York Republican there. And I went, yeah, well, why would I be surprised by this? Yeah, there's also another Democrat there. Schumer. No, no, there was a, a, another Democratic Congresswoman oh. who dressed like a suffragette, and again, that, it's performative. But this thing's going on anyway. That's poking in the eye. Yeah. Well, so so is the tax of rich. It's kind of poking death in the, to the eye. Met, death it, to the Met Ball. Met it, it, it's not. Think. It wasn't my favorite AOC moment, but I gave her a pass because, oof, if you spend your whole life comparing yourself to Bernie, then you don't get out of bed. It's the ones we love that let us down. Yeah, so never meet you here. <laughs> and, uh, and with that, uh, we will be back with our main topic after this break where we'll be talking about the Ryder Cup. Yeah, baby. Ever wanted to try those pre-portioned, make-at-home, fresh ingredient meal kit services such as HelloFresh or Blue Apron, but the price tag is a bit out of your budget? Here's a new, well, it's a used meal kit service for you to take a bite out of. Brown Apron. Brown Apron is a meal-by-meal service that cuts the cost while also cutting the quality of the ingredients they send you. The company was started by a couple of bottom feeders surviving off the damaged, discarded, and returned items from the dumpster behind Blue Apron's order processing plant, and it quickly grew once they realized they could sell the garbage for profit on the internet. And because you're listening to this podcast today, you can enter the promo code BUGCHECK at checkout, and the Brown Apron team will give your first order a second glance to comb through it for bugs and stuff. Check out Brown Apron today. You won't be disappointed that you hadn't heard about them sooner. Bug check promo code may only be used once and only applies to your first order. Ingredients provided may or may not make a complete meal and do not come with a recipe. Do not order from Brown Apron if you have not had a tetanus shot within the last eight years. It is not recommended to feed garbage to children under the age of 12. So welcome back. So this will be the Andrew Wet Dream podcast because the Ryder Cup is his second or third favorite thing in the world. It's one of my favorite favorite uh biannual sporting events i look forward to it um well wait that, that's time. a very small thing because how many oh, biannual well, that's true uh, it's either well, that it's or the olympics beats, it beats world cup soccer i'm much, well, I'm much more into the Ryder cup than i am the world cup or the olympics Ryder cup is a big deal for andrew all right so the Ryder cup starts in 1927 with a seed merchant he an english wealthy and i know that's a shock that a wealthy guy had something to do with golf. But a wealthy seed merchant began funding this thing. But really, we're going to go back a couple of years to 1921 because no American had ever won the Open Championship. And for those of you who remember our last talk about this, the Open Championship is what Donald Trump said was recently called the British Open, or used to be called the British Open, but it's always been called the Open Championship. And... No American ever won. So they got a team together, send 11 people over, and the American team played a group of Europeans. They lost big. Well, Brit- in 27, they're just the British. This is 21. It's, okay. Yeah, they played just British, right. and, and, and I, they might have put an Irishman in there. Probably not. But maybe. The Brits will never recognize the independence of the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, they're Northern. <laughs> they're, they're Protestant Irish. Because, let's face it, the golf clubs would not allow Catholics to play. (laughs) (laughs) While this was a failure, that year, a guy by the name of Harris, or Harrison, I can't read my writing, did, in fact, win the Open Championship. So it was a success. They come back 
in 26, try it again. Uh, there was a lot of problems with that. But then in 27, the actual Ryder Cup begins. And it's called the Ryder Cup because he kept funding it. Samuel Ryder. Yes. Right. And it's I was, the, it was very, the merchant's name. I yeah. was very interested to discover that it was not named after Winona Ryder. Because <laughs> my belief was that it was like The Bachelor. You'd play golf, and then the 12 winners would have the opportunity to date Winona Ryder until they she, they found out she was stealing from them. But <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's, that's a fascinating prompt. I, that's I a, like that. Yeah, that, that did not happen, but I it would be better if it did. And really, <laughs> any era, any era, Winona Ryder. Uh, yeah, from Heather's to uh, what's the Sailor movie? She's Big Daddy. On? No, she's in the no, not the, Big Daddy. Uh, the animated one is or no, the Deeds, Mr. Deeds. Mr. Deeds. Yeah, uh. <laughs> she is heartbreaking in Age of Innocence. That's one of the great movie performances, most underrated movie performances ever. It's underrated Her Scorsese in yeah. Age of Innocence. Yeah. Maybe his underrated Scorsese. Big maybe time. his yeah. best film. I, I just mm. love that film. And also a great novel. Um, and if Melanie Perry is a listener, we've had this conversation many, many times. Jane Austen? Uh, we're going Wharton. off the rails here. It's Wharton. No, Edith Wharton. Edith yeah, Wharton. Edith Wharton. Anyway, Brandon's really spinning his Brandon's really spinning his arms now. Um, so this goes this way. The Americans win it the first. Well, they, goes two, they go two and two, the first four. And then they just go on a rampage. And what changes that? As far as so like post World War Two, like yes. what? Well, what change? What change? What happens that makes suddenly this almost a European leading leaning event? Well, that's uh, the late seventies, nineteen seventy nine, where you have these, these these icons of American golf, the likes of of Nicholas and Palmer, Weisskopf, Miller, Watson, down the line, and they and the Americans dominate the event for almost a half century, and then they decide to expand qualification. It's no longer Great Britain and Ireland. It's now the entire continent of Europe. And that's 1979. And that kind of coincides with the emergence of German star Bernhard Langer, Spanish star Seve Ballesteros, two all-time greats, who become two decade-long stalwarts of this team. And once you include, once you bring in German players, Spanish players, and eventually French, Italian, you know, the player pool's bigger, and there are like huge dynamic stars from these countries that were left out prior to 1979. Since then, it's been... Basically, the Europeans have won more than the Americans since then. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So this year, and we're going to skip ahead to this year, and then we're going to just talk about it in general. Mm -hmm. This year, it's played at Whistling Straits in Kohler, Wisconsin. I was watching this course. It's a link-style course designed by Pat Dye and his wife. Uh, Pete Dye. Pete Dye, I'm sorry. Nope. Pete Dye, Pat sorry. Dye coached Auburn. Correct. Pete Dye and his wife. <laughs> yeah. His wife also coached Auburn, which was weird. And it looks really fucking hard. Like, it's got a 220-yard par 3-7th where you're hitting the ball. Basically, you have about nine square feet to hit the ball into. The par 4 ninth is 446. Uh, there's only three trees on the course. All of them surround the ninth course, uh, the ninth hole. Um, the 11th is 519 yards, par 4. It's about the longest course I've ever seen. And they say the last four holes are the most difficult finishing in golf. What do you know about this course? I know that it hosted the 2004, 2010, and 2015 PGA Championships. It's a it's a relatively new course, and you know, construction wise, it was kind of made, or, you know, designed with majors and Ryder Cups in mind by Die. 
what it is is it's a perfect course for American golf strength, which is which is distance length, and in the Ryder Cup, the so it alternates every year. Where this year it's in the States, in two years it'll be in Europe. I believe it's going to be in Italy in two years. And the captain, the the home the home captain gets to kind of like set the course to their desire. So on this very long course, this driver's course, what Steve, which American captain Steve Stricker is going to do, is he's going to cut down the rough, and he's going to let his guys that and and the Americans probably have like. Of their twelve players, they probably have twelve of the best fifteen drivers of the ball in the in the event. Cut down the rough, play it to their strengths, make it so that bomb and gouge, just hit it long, and you know. So the Steve Stryker that's doing this is not the Steve Stryker from Airplane. Steve, Steve Stricker. Oh, it's yes. Steve Stricker. I thought it was Steve yes. Stricker for the the Wisconsin native as well. So Andrew, you so there's two things here. One is I did not know that about the Ryder Cup. The, the captain gets to dictate the. The set the, the setup of the course. Yes. So we can basically say like, I want the pin up front. Yes. I want the pin. Up. Yep. That in some way, because we've talked about this off air a bit, and I want to talk about it on air, which is this Ryder Cup now kind of goes between European wins in Europe, American wins in America, European wins in Europe, mm-hmm. Americans wins in America. So it golf, which is supposed to be a sport that is kind of even for everyone. Yeah. It's a tournament where you're giving one side this kind of extreme advantage. It's been really pronounced the last three installments. 2014 uh, was in Scotland, Glen Eagles, and that was set, again, the, the Europe captain Paul McGinley set that course to be tight, narrow, uh, errant drives, penal, which was very much in favor of his European side. You go to 2016 in Hazeltine in Minnesota where Captain Davis Love for the Americans. Again, he's doing what, what Strickland's do this week. He sets the place wide open, easy pins, birdie fest. That's to American advantage. Two years ago in Paris, kind of a, a replay of 2014 of just like, we're going to make this course really tight and really penal for errant shots. And I think I do think, and if this is like a, if this if the Americans win this in the fashion they won four years ago, five years ago, because they didn't play last year because of the COVID, um, I think you're going to see like an arbiter, uh, an intermediary come in and there's going to be a neutral the design of the course, the layout, the pins, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be set by somebody that's just neutral. Because I think we're getting to a place where it's there's too too much is that, there's too much on the line with how the course is set. And you're absolutely right. It, it is one of those things that's kind of like remarkable. Golf is a sport that is pretty equal. If you're a six foot guy yeah. that weighs two oh five and you're muscular, you're gonna hit the ball how how long you hit the ball. But it is still a sport where like you see the Europeans play a completely different style. Yeah. Than Americans. Americans are like big bombers. Europeans are like short irons and putters. Where it's just like this kind of balance in this game that is completely unbalanced that you don't really, that follows the track of like other sports. It would be like if when Foreman fought Ali, Foreman got to decide the weight of the gloves. Like, oh, we're going to use six-ounce gloves. Good analogy. And Ali said, no, no, we're using 14-ounce gloves because, you know, you want to offset the punching power. It's also like gerrymandering is an assistant coach here because that's what it is. It's gerrymandering, of course. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, And you you mentioned how everything changes in 79 when all of Europe comes in. And it's really, it's 79, but it's also, it's, it's, it's 85 at the Belfry in Ireland where the Europeans trounce the Americans. And this is like... 
the Americans had lost some close ones, you know, a half century ago, but they got their ass kicked. Was that one the and, record where it was like eight and a half, nine and a half they won by? They uh, th- It was convincing. I don't believe it was the biggest margin, but it was. there are some big margins to come. And that's kind of my point is that since about 85, you know, the Europeans, despite on paper having one through 12 lesser talent, the Europeans have found a way to kind of like, they have had the upper hand in this, in this event for the last three, three decades plus. And a part of that is, a big part of that is the idea of this, they come together as a team. It's 12 individuals that kind of, that kind of, okay, it's making a face, but like. All right, so, so this is where I, can, I think right. we're going to move the conversation. Do you want to move the conversation now or did you have anything else to say? No, I want to move it based on that. Okay. Because the thing about the Ryder Cup Reminds me of the. Remember when the there tried to be a World Tennis Championship League, and everybody was on teams, and they played the teams played, mm-hmm. and the problem with that is tennis is not a team sport. The Davis Cup, the right. Waver Cup, yeah, yeah, but no, th- there was also just a league, World Team Tennis, yeah, yeah, World Team Tennis, and the problem is unless you play doubles, it's not a team sport, and it's certainly never a sport of more than two. Patrick Harrington said. He was talking about the... And Patrick Carrington is the captain of the European side right. this year. And he was talking about the DeChambeau... Kepka. Kepka. Kepka, whatever the fuck his name is. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> he was talking about how the fact that they played on the same team is going to help the Americans. And he said, and this is a quote, when you have friction between two players, you bring them into a team environment and overcome it, that's actually a big bonus to the team. And I call bullshit on all of this. Do you mean to tell me that if T- uh, Tony Finau. That's my guy. I know he is. That's why I brought him up. <laughs> is standing over a 19-foot 19, 19 downhill putt on the 11th green. He's going to line it up and say, you know what? If Brooke and Bryson can get together, I can hit this putt and make it. It's not a team sport. And to, to pretend it's a team sport strikes me as literally insane because it's not a team sport. Even um, there's foursome and four ball. What's the one where? So uh, they play foursomes, which is just straight alternate shot. Right. They just alternate shots. And then four ball is you just play your own ball, and the lowest score right. uh, counts for your, you know. So in. Yeah, it's an insane format. It's 16 of 20 oh. events. In 16 of 20. It's whoever shoots the lowest score by themselves. Well, no. uh, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in, tw- in 20 of 28. 20 of 28. Because you have 12 singles oh, right. and you have eight, right. four right. ball, eight four So singles. in 20 yeah. of 28, it's just who's, who and has the that best is, hole. You're absolutely right. That's not a team sport. I mean, no. if you have LeBron James, obviously you are a favorite for the NBA championship. But he passes to someone else. Like, it, it's a thing that makes the Ryder Cup so weird. These guys never behave like teammates. They all hate each other because they're all rich, arrogant <laughs> white guys. They all hate each other. There's except cl- for there's, Tiger. There's clicks. There's except clicks. For, yeah, except the, for Tiger, yeah. who's a rich, arrogant black guy, and they don't like him at all. And I just find the whole setup weird. Zach, is that me? No, it is. It, throughout the entire research of this, I could never nail down why the format makes sense. <laughs> Because it just seems insane. And golf is like a very individualistic sport. Like Andrew and I play regularly. We play about, we play about once a week. 
And one of the things we talk about on the course always like we're not competing against each other when we play. Like when Andrew and I play, we're not playing against each other. We're playing against ourselves. And that's what golf is, is you're playing against yourself because you're just trying to like, it's a sport you can't master. So it's just, just a sport you're trying to do the best you can possibly do at. Not the, not the best, not the sport where it's like, if I hit a great drive and Andrew hits a good drive, he doesn't then come up and go, hey man, we're a team. I'm hitting from your ball. Like, it's like, no, go back to your yeah. ball. Like, it's not a scramble. The, the only relationship golfers have with other people is literally the person who works for them, who carries their bag and says, how many yards in the hole? And they look it up and say, oh, uh, 166. I'm going to use this five iron. Or, no, the 166, they're going to use a pitching wedge. But, okay, I'm going to use a pitching wedge. I'd use a nine. I'll use a pitching wedge. Give me the pitching wedge. Like, that's that's their relationship with other people on the course. It just seems so strange to make it a team sport because it's just not a team sport. Does that ever bother you? Yes. And, but, and, but, that's also kind of what makes it compelling to me is the, the, those first two days of, like, team matches of, like, I watched the tour week in, week out. And I and, and like me and Zach went to Cromwell this year, and part of my viewership, I'm always kind of watching how guys just interact. I like I like in my head trying to figure out, you know, who the pairs are going to be those first two days, like that first that opening morning, like who are going to be the four teams, the four two man teams that go up for each side. To me, it's just it's just I'm not saying it's like. It's just fascinating. But me. didn't Woods and Mickelson they play did, okay, four and was, one time and they hated each other and they still did fine? They still they, fought. Mm-hmm, no, they two, won two, 2004. They Captain, won, didn't they win once they together? Did, they did not. 2004, right. uh, Mickelson wins the Masters that year, gets the monkey off the back, whatever, changes equipment the week before the Ryder Cup. Uh, him and Woods are one and two in the world. Woods is one, Mickelson's two. They don't have much. Now they, they hobnob together. They're fine now. But back in 2004, they, they were not close in any respect but Hal Sutton decides to put them together twice that opening Friday uh, they get their asses kicked both sessions they lose both times and that's kind of like I like Potter Carrington but that quote you read like what are you gonna fucking put you, yeah, think, put, you think putting Kepka and DeChambeau together is good? no that's, that's a, they're, a disaster they're, they're not putting that's a disaster they're not putting Kepka and, and DeChambeau not, together and he's not going to but and so there is these guys hate each other the and, idea and, that's and, a good and, thing is and, just and, and, for, no. and for our listeners who don't play golf like golf is 80% mental. Yeah, you know, good company matters. Yeah, like like when I'm when I'm having a bad day and I go play golf with Andrew, I'm having a better day. I play better because I'm around a guy I like. When we're playing with like an asshole third guy who comes up, we play worse because we're playing with an asshole. We're not having as good a time and so, that affects you. But basically, in except for eight matches, the relationship between the mm-hmm. players on the on the team and the relationship they would have in the normal PGA tour is that they dress in the same place. <laughs> That's the relationship. So here's the other thing, Andrew, and I don't mean to be difficult about the Ryder cup cause I'll watch it. I watch it all the time. It's a, it's a really fun. It's fun. I think, to watch. I think but, it's good TV, but yeah, it's, it's fun which, to watch, which is a low bar. Which, <laughs> well, and it's also, you know, I mean, you, you sold told me before the air, uh, David Duval called it another corporate outing. Uh, until he played and won. Okay, yeah. But it but that's what it is though. It's and there's a lot to that. 
there's just briefly here two years the two most significant Ryder Cups of our lifetimes and this is where we're going to get a little political here the whole thing the whole the whole tenor of the event changes in 1991 uh, we are in the throes of the Gulf War, and we have uh, a European team that won in 85, won in 87. They tied in 89. What happens in a tie is, well, you won because you keep the cup. The cup stays in Europe. 91, they build this course, Kiwa Island on the Atlantic Ocean shore. They call this thing the War by the Shore, which to a lot of Europeans was like, that's a little incendiary, whatever. You've got players... You've got Corey Pavin, who's a player, a future captain, wearing a camouflaged hat during the event, which pissed off a lot of Europeans who were like, this is a coalition effort in the Gulf, man. Like, what? Are you just trying to, like, use this sentiment to kind of, like, you know, get the, you know, build your home field advantage? We're fighting this war together, Europe and in the U.S. You've got NBC leads their weekend coverage, George H.W. Bush, and he gets on there and he says, I'm going to... I'm going to be patriotic, and I'm just going to let you all know that uh, I'm rooting for, let's go America, go America. And again, that kind of pissed off the European side. And that was, the 91 Ryder Cup is like the most hotly contested, the tension, it's like, there's the fucking really interesting documentaries about it. Mark Calcavecchia almost kills himself after he, lo- after he halves his singles match, he loses the last four holes, half point, and he almost walks into the Atlantic Ocean. The players had to go save him. It just became this like... It became like a patriotic thing in 91 that it wasn't before. You mentioned Duval. It kind of, after 91, 93, the Americans win again. They lose in 95, 97. And now you've got the Woods, Duval, Phil Mickelson uh, era in. It's a new guard. It's not the guys that played in like 91, 93. It's it's, It's these guys and David Duval and Woods too. Woods was like in 99. This is a, this is a glorified exhibition. They wanted, they wanted, you know, they wanted to be paid, you know. They didn't. They wanted compensation for this thing. That was a huge money generator for the PGA of America for the European Tour. They didn't see any of that money outside of like a share going to like a charity of their choice, I believe. Um, but then these guys get in and play, and it's it's a te- it's it's tense, and that's what makes a good TV. It's and I don't know if it's if it's just like. These guys being like competitor, it's. I don't think they're playing for country because, well, Europe. It's there's like eight flags you're representing, you know. Back in the day when it was Seve and Longer and Faldo and Wisdom, yeah. they were playing for the European Tour. Now they all play on the PGA Tour. So what are they playing for? And it's, and you know, it's an interesting history. One thing to just mention quickly as we wrap up here, um, is you you the one of the political events you left out was '93. Where 91, they have this great patriotism where, you know, there's a hat, they're all in the the Gulf War, they're all repping the American pride. And then 93, when Clinton is trying to raise capital gains tax, uh, who was it, great Statler? So out, was outspoken. Paul, Paul Azinger, Paul, who I believe was the most outspoken of like, I'm not, I'm not going to they, see this they, guy, he's raising yeah, my taxes. They didn't want to go see Clinton because Clinton was proposing raising the capital gains tax to balance the budget so that we could provide services, which also goes to show, like, these guys' patriotism you know, in, in our rants, we talk about performative actions. Well, These guys' sure. patriotism goes as for far sure. as their wallet. And and as you said, that like one of the reasons this started is because the Europeans didn't play against the Americans. And now the Europeans not only play against America, they live here. They all have homes in Florida. It, it's, it strikes me as, I mean, 
right now the difference between American players and European players is a distinction without a difference. It, it, it's like it's like watching France play and the French being very excited that they might get the gold medal because Rudy Gobert identifies as French even though he lives in this country, hasn't lived in France in 10 years. Here's the other question I have before we wrap up. Yeah. <clears throat> Why do they need five assistant captains? I mean, what it's exactly abs- do you have to do as a captain on the Ryder Cup team? If you were an NFL team, this meant you would have 22 coaches. Like, why do you need five co-captains who don't play? Uh, the idea is you serve as a, a quote-unquote vice captain once or twice, and that sets you up where the PGA or the European Tour is going to... You're going to be... If you're a vice captain, you're on the fast track to being a captain. Um, they want to have a captain with every match. So, like, on, like, the first four sessions, the first two days, there's four matches... They want to have like an alternate one of the, one of the vice captains. It's fucking ludicrous. Are, no, are, I totally, are, I'm just explaining from their perspective. That's their perspective of it. They want to have a, a a guy out there with every match. It's ludicrous. It's, it's yeah. I, I am sure. I am um, sure. Bryson DeChambeau is hanging on what Freddie Couples could tell him. The, <laughs> before I before I guess I sign off here. I think the most fascinating thing about this event to me is that in my lifetime the Europeans have largely dominated, despite being on paper, 1 through 12, an inferior side. And that, again, we laugh about, like, team sport this, team sport that. I'm telling you right now, you watch the, you've watched, you watched, I watched enough of these to know that, and Paul Azinger said this on a podcast years ago, he said, basically, the Ryder Cup is in the Americans' like consciousness where, like, it's in the Europeans' blood. They just, they get off to beating Americans. Whether they play, they all play on the same tour week in, week out, when they band together, twelve v twelve, they want they want to kick our ass more than they want to kick our more than more than we want to kick their ass. And guess what? They've kicked our ass a lot more despite being outmanned most years. That makes me feel like, given that they all live in the same neighborhoods in Florida, you know that you different know, upbringings. You though. know that uh, uh, Warner Brothers comic where the dog and the wolf walk to because they're gonna, they walk to work together. And they punch in together, and then the dog spends all the time protecting the sheep, and the wolf spends all the time trying to kill the sheep, and then they just walk out together on the way home. See you tomorrow, Bill. And, uh, yeah, so it it is – look, it's great television, and it's better when it's in Europe because when you wake up on a Sunday morning, morning, it's on. It's coffee golf. Yeah, yeah, it's just they can't put it on against a London NFL game or no one would watch it. So, Andrew, who's winning this year? I get the Amer- I mean, the Americans just have too. They have too much, too much firepower. Uh, America, I'll say, uh, you want to score fifteen and a half, twelve and a half Americans. They're a close one. Yeah, I think I think it will be fairly close. Fifteen and a half, twelve and a half Americans. And just to poke behind the curtain, both Zach and I have notes open all the time, and Andrew's just riffing. So it's, it's <laughs> hey, fact check me out there if you want to. I got you know. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. That's your throw, peril. Don't, don't bother. <laughs> throw down the throw down the fact check my ass. Fact, fact check me and then fact check me on the. Ages of my parents. Yeah. <laughs> With that, we will see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please smash that subscribe button and follow us on Facebook at the Bill Bradley Collective. We'll see you all again next week.